If you would please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Book of Daniel chapter 12. Today we come to the end of our study in the book of Daniel, a book that was not written for those suffering persecution, but rather for those who were living comfortable and settled existence within an alien culture. In other words, a situation very much like ours. As this is the end of our study, there will be a bit of review to tie things together. The book has two halves. The first is far more accessible than the second half, which has great difficulties. But I must insist, um, and it's sort of the foundation of the sermon, that that there is a unity. These aren't just some chapters that are thrown together and we have the book of Daniel, but there is, in fact, a very strong unity to the book. It's not just a bunch of stories for Sunday school and then uh, prophecies, you know, visions for theologians in the second half. What we find in the first half of the book is a strong foundation that helps us in dealing with the second half, with the visions, the dreams, and so on. The foundation is found in two basic principles, two lessons, two aspects. These are demonstrated again and again in the first six chapters. The first has to do with the actions and the responsibilities of God's people. And the second is with the reality of the fact that God is in control. and His kingdom will one day cover the earth. So let's review a bit. When it comes to God's people, the question that comes to mind is, what are they supposed to do? What is their place in society? What are their responsibilities? And this is played out in the story of Daniel and others from the royal family or nobility of Judah who are taken into exile to Babylon and placed in a program of assimilation to become officials within the imperial system. The four men were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As we know, they were given names, and we have to assume that they accepted these names. They were given Babylonian names. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, it's a strong name, is given the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah, God has been gracious, is given the name Shadrach. Azariah, God has helped, is now called Abednego. The giving of a new name was a sign of new ownership. They now belong to the Babylonian Empire. They now have a new allegiance. They must swear allegiance to this empire. We see this, by the way, and we read this recently as we're reading through the Bible in the story of Esther. Esther is her Chaldean name, if you wish, or her Persian name, I'm sorry. Uh, Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Instead of having these strong Hebrew names that point to God's actions in human history, they're now given Babylonian names based on Babylonian gods. Esther's name is from Ishtar, Persian goddess. One might be tempted to think that these people had sold out, that they had completely assimilated into the program. That's not the case. By the way, just parenthetically, I find it interesting that we remember Daniel by his Hebrew name, but the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them by their Babylonian names. We've seen that there are two options for people who live in captivity, who live in exile, or like us who live in a post-Christian world. We can either withdraw from mainstream society or we can blend in with mainstream society. 
These are the twofold temptations, I think, that face God's people as they are a minority, a dissonant minority in mainstream society. One temptation is to tribalize, is to withdraw, and to quarantine ghettos, either imposed by outside, but oftentimes self-imposed. We are going to separate ourselves from society. The other is to make accommodation and to compromise. The first eliminates contact by isolation. We don't want to deal with the outside world. And the second removes conflict with the world by compromising. In the light of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to isolate ourselves is to put our lamp under a basket or under a bushel to keep the light of the truth hidden. To accommodate, again from the Sermon on the Mount, is to be salt that loses its saltiness, to lose the reality of the truth. Tribalize, you know, isolate, or do we accommodate, do we compromise? There has to be a third way, a third option. In a foreign pagan land and society, how can they fit in without being swallowed up? This is what we find in the book of Daniel. Not isolation, not compromise, but faithful obedience, recognizing that God is in control. Sometimes it means saying yes and going along with the program, and sometimes it means saying no. In chapter 1, we hear Daniel and his friends saying no, that they will not conform or participate, they will not defile themselves with the king's food and drink. In chapter 2, we hear Daniel saying yes, that he will in fact tell the king what his dream is, and he will interpret the dream, give the meaning to the king. It is, in fact, a response to someone who is in great trouble. In chapter 3, we hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, no, they will not bow down and worship the king's golden image, even if it means being thrown into the fiery furnace. In chapter 4, Daniel says, yes, He will, in fact, not only interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar's had, but he will call Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. This doesn't have to happen if Nebuchadnezzar will repent. In chapter 5, Daniel once again says yes. He reads the handwriting on the wall and tells Belshazzar what is going to happen. And in chapter 6, Daniel says no. Darius the king has made a decree that people are only to pray to him for the next 30 days and Daniel will not stop praying to the God of Israel even if it means being thrown to the lions. So we find three yeses and three noes that we don't have to isolate, we don't have to compromise. There are times in faithful obedience when we say yes, we will go along with what's happening and other times we will say no. We will not do that. And we see this in Daniel and the three Hebrew children, as they are known. This is the first reality. The second reality is that God is in control and that his kingdom will one day cover the whole earth. And again, in each of the six chapters at the beginning, this is spelled out. In chapter one, they say no to the king's food. And yet God gives them wisdom to these four young men. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. They don't have to go with the program of assimilation and do what the king says and God will still bless them. In chapter 2, we read in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end 
but it will itself endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar is told God's kingdom is coming. And then in chapter 3, after he has thrown them into the fiery furnace and they come out unsinged, unburned, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? And then he is made uh, like an animal for a season of time. And then he raises his eyes to heaven. And we read, at, that, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. In chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel tells the king, this is what these words mean. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. God is in control. Then finally in chapter 6 with Darius, Darius, after Daniel is brought out of the lion's den, having been unharmed, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. These two principles are what propel us into the second half of the book. And we can't let go of them because they are critical. We have seen the past few Sundays that there is a shift that we miss in English because we are reading in English, but chapters 2 through 7 are actually written in Aramaic, which was the language of diplomacy, of trade. It was the language of the empire. In chapter 8, it shifts back to Hebrew. In chapter 1, it was in Hebrew. Now chapter 8 to the end of the book, it is in Hebrew, the language of God's people. I think in some ways this reflects a shift in Daniel's emotional state. Nebuchadnezzar was someone he could work with and work for with a clear conscience. He had respect for God, for the people of God. He's been replaced by someone who has neither. I think for Daniel it seems like there's been a shift to the dark side of human history. What he has shown in a series of visions is that empires, even though they are portrayed as beasts in chapter 7, are judged for how they treat God's people. God is not an anti-imperialist. Every political system that human beings set up has moral defects, has economic, has social defects. And one could argue that they are not judged primarily on that, but how they treat God's people. And that's what these visions are about how God's people will be treated. So the dark days that are coming, what Daniel's experiencing is not a dark day. Okay, It is for him, perhaps, but things are going to get a lot worse down the road, and God is showing him that through these visions. But this doesn't mean that there is a shift in the reality that God is in control. And neither does it mean that there's a shift in our responsibility. We can't say, oh, now I live in this darkest part of human history, uh, therefore I must isolate myself from society, or I must accommodate and compromise so that I and my family can survive. No, the answer is faithful 
obedience. And that continues to the end of our study today in Daniel chapter 12. In chapter 7, which is in Aramaic, Daniel is shown a picture of the coming empires. Then in chapters 8 through 12, uh, we have a picture of God's people with the background of these various empires. So this isn't primarily a, a history lesson on the empires. It is that. But this is the background, the backdrop against which we see the persecution of God's people. In chapter 9, we read of Daniel's prayer of confession and supplication, which was rooted in his reading of scripture. This was a shift that had occurred because the temple is gone, the sacrificial system is gone. What are God's people supposed to do? And the focus now becomes scripture. And as Daniel reads scripture, it then leads him to prayer and to pray to God. When we listen to his prayer in chapter 9, it becomes clear that it is rooted in what he has read in scripture. And for the whole Jewish community in exile, it was the books, it was scripture that kept their tradition, their theology, and their worship alive. In the visions that we've looked at the past few weeks, Daniel is shown or told about the reality of the unseen, things that he didn't know were going on, that there are, there's an angelic conflict that is happening, that there's a connection between the seen and the unseen, and there is, in fact, a coming darkness, a great darkness. Just some things to note as I review from chapter 10 on. 7 and 8 are visual visions, if you wish. From chapter 10 on, these are narratives in which Daniel simply told this is what is going to happen. And it actually fleshes out what he was already told in the visions that were visual, that were symbolic. Now they are explained to him. We see that Daniel and God's people as well are involved in this conflict between the seen and the unseen, or within the unseen realm and the seen realm. In chapter 10, verse 20, so he said, the angel says to him, do you know why I have come to you? And when you tie it in with verse number 12, see the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. That is, Daniel's prayer and the conflict that is going in the angelic realm are in fact very much interconnected. Um, Daniel doesn't know this. What conflict? Keep talking about conflict. What conflict? Well, between princes or angels. Uh, We have the prince of the Persian kingdom that resisted uh, Gabriel 21 days. Then we have Michael, the chief of princes, came to help um, because of the conflict. And the 21 days, Daniel was praying for three weeks. So there is a connection between his prayer and the conflict that is going on. Why is there a conflict? Well, because God had promised through the prophets that his people would get to go back to the promised land, to Jerusalem. Cyrus, the Persian king, wants to give a decree and make this happen. Those who oppose God don't want this to happen. They don't want God's people to return to Jerusalem. And so there is a conflict. Remember, this is about, the the section is in Hebrew and is about what will happen to the people of God. So what we read in Ezra about the, the decree from Cyrus, this angel, this prince had been resisting it. But in fact, he was unsuccessful. What follows is a detailed description of future events involving Gentile empires. In chapter 1, 
Daniel is given a history lesson of what will happen four centuries down the road. Um, Rather than reading to you the rest of chapter 10 and chapter 11, simply put, it is that Alexander the Great will conquer the then known world. He will die. It will be split up into four sections. And then the focus is on the conflict between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Ptolemies, Cleopatra comes from them, and then Seleucids. And they keep fighting back and forth. And you're like, yeah, so what? Well, it is because the northern kingdom will in fact persecute the people of God. There's a lot of detail that is given, but this is all backdrop. This is all the background. And it explains to us, or it explains to Daniel, that in the dark days ahead, the people of God will in fact suffer great persecution in the northern kingdom. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes will in fact desecrate the temple, will actually sacrifice a pig on the altar there, will bring great sorrow and will kill a lot of God's faithful people. Now we come to chapter 12. This is the last chapter in the book. And some things for you to consider before I read it that will help us understand. First of all, it should be read and understood in light of what's happened previously, what we've been given. Again, this is not simply uh, some random collection of things put together. There is a strong unity to this. We will not understand chapter 12 without the chapters that come before it. Chapters 9 through 11 are a fleshing out of chapters 7 and 8, mostly 8. Chapter 9 gives numbers regarding these events. Chapter 10 tells us about the conflicts that are to come. And in verse number 21, Michael is referred to as Daniel's prince. Now we are told here in verse number 1 that he is the prince of God's people. Secondly, we will come across the expression, the abomination that causes desolation. This has already been mentioned twice in chapter 9 and in chapter 11. It will be mentioned again here in verse number 11. Jesus mentions the abomination that causes desolation, Matthew 24. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I believe that these are two separate events. The first is Antiochus Epiphanes when he desecrated the temple and the second would happen in 70 AD when the temple and Jerusalem will be, will be destroyed by the Romans. Another thing to help us as we read this chapter is that the time of the end is not the same as the end of time. I think we tend to confuse the two or to equate the two. Um, Many people have seen chapter 12 as referring to the end of time. I don't think that it does. It's referring to the time of the end, end of a particular segment of human history. And we will see this as we go along. I think a good comparison is when someone, uh, maybe being overly dramatic, says it's the end of the world. And they don't mean the end of the world as we know it, but the end of their particular world because something terrible has happened. We should understand chapter 12 as, un- as read through Daniel's eyes, how he understood it and to the extent that he did. But having said that, there is something here that I think Daniel may not have understood. That is the resurrection. The resurrection is not mentioned once, but twice in this book. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse number one. 
At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of death will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river, one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted up his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. What does it all mean? That's what Daniel asks, or that's what tells us in verse number 8, I heard but did not understand. What did he not understand? I think probably much of it. But the question that comes right before the answer that he then says, you know, I don't understand, is how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And the answer is it will be time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people has finally broken has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Since Daniel does not understand, he asks, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? And I find the answer to this question to be fascinating, but I also think it's the key to the whole book of Daniel and the application for us. Verse number nine, he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And then there are more or less less than clear statements in verses 10, 11, and 12. And then in verse number 13, the resurrection that I referred to, you will rest and at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. We see it at the end of the chapter as it was at the beginning of the chapter. Verse number 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What are we to make of this? What are we to take away from this? What are we being told? What was Daniel being told? Remember the two principles that we find in the first half of the book, that God is in control and that God's people are to live in faithful obedience, not isolation, hiding the light, the truth under a bushel, or accommodation, salt losing its saltiness. No matter the circumstances, 
These two principles are true. And that's why we read in verse number 9, Go your way, Daniel. And then in verse number 13, did you see it? It's there again. As for you, go your way till the end. I think this really gives us a strong clue as to what the last verse is about. It's about the resurrection. That Daniel is to go and be faithful because God is in control until his death. But that's not the end of the story. There will, in fact, be the resurrection. Daniel and God's people will be raised from the dead and he will be rewarded. What Daniel is to do is to live a life of faithful obedience. This is God's call for his people of every generation. I think there's an important lesson um, for those who are optimists and for those who are pessimists. That we are not to be optimists, we're not to be pessimists. You know, each one takes a different view of things. One says things will get better, they are better, they're getting better. The other one will say, no, they're actually not, and they're going to get a lot worse. If both people arguing, if you have a Christian optimist and a Christian pessimist, I think if that's the way they argue, they both miss the point. The point is they have a calling. God has put them where they are and they are to live lives of faithful obedience. We are called to be faithfully obedient no matter the circumstances, which can be and have been brutal. And for some of our brothers and sisters today, are quite brutal as they suffer persecution. We are to know and to trust that God's kingdom is coming. It is, God is in control and slowly but surely the kingdom of of heaven is spreading over the face of the earth. As we read in chapter 2, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. Then Nebuchadnezzar says his, king, his dominion is an, ever, or an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That means every generation God's in control, even if it doesn't look like it. Darius says in chapter 6, for he is a living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. It may not look like that at times, but God is still in control. And then in Daniel's first vision, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel is to be faithful. He is to be obedient when times are good and when times are not good. He is to continue until the end, until the end of his life. Because that's not the end of the story. There is, in fact, the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. And he will continue. Go your way. Do what you're supposed to do. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that? I'm reminded of a a well-known a pastor in London, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, I want to finish strong. We can't imagine that somehow we can be faithful and then at a certain point we can just sort of peter out and, you know, and then wait till we die and then later on we'll be resurrected and we'll go to heaven and all those wonderful things. 
we are to be faithful to God even now. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that in a rather small congregation it is striking that we have four individuals named Daniel. Uh, Dan Nobley, our, our elder, his grandson, Marcus Daniel Nobley, and then Titus Daniel, G, and then Ransom, who will be turning one this Tuesday, Ransom Daniel G. I tried to imagine this. I want you to try to imagine this. Let's take Ransom and Marcus. Imagine their great-grandsons. It's hard to imagine because Ransom is only going to be one. But imagine their great-grandsons. Marcus is five, going to be six. It's a long way down the road if the Lord does not return. Will it be a time of darkness? We don't know. Will this country continue to remain? We don't know. Will it be a time of persecution? We simply do not know. But the principles will remain the same. That God is in control and we are to live lives of faithful obedience. As Marcus's and Ransom's grandparents have followed and their parents have followed in the faith, we trust that by God's grace they will and his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons. But we have no idea what it's going to look like then. We really don't. But if we could say something to Marcus and to Ransom today, we would say, go your way until the end of your days. Be faithful to God. And even when it does not look like God is in control, the reality is that he is. I mentioned when we began this series, I've been pastoring for four decades now, never preached or taught through the book of Daniel before. Not quite sure why. I'm really glad by God's grace, decided to do it now because I think it has so much to teach us. We live in relative comfort. We're sort of like Daniel. Yeah, we're a minority, um, but for the most part, things are not that difficult. They're not that hard. And the question is, will we retreat into a ghetto? Or will we blend in? Or will we be faithfully obedient to God? We live in a post-Christian world. There's no denying that. But we're still God's people. And God is still in control. And he will be until the end of time. Not simply the time of our end, here on earth, our lives, but he will continue. And by God's grace, may we, the next generation, the generation after, and the one after that, go their way and do what God has called them to do. Let's pray together. Father, we are finite. We're made in your image, but we do not have your vision. We can look to the past, but to imagine the future, I think, is quite difficult. Daniel is shown the future, and he doesn't understand. It is so dark, a time of great persecution, 
a time of many martyrs who die because they are God's people. But as Daniel is told, may we hear and listen and understand that you are still in control and that we are still to be faithfully obedient. We experience tremendous freedom in this country. People may mock us, but we're not persecuted as such. But even now, we have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. Some have been imprisoned. It's our sister in Nepal, our brother in Turkey. Some have been killed. The suicide bombings that happened several weeks ago in Indonesia. We pray for them that they would see that you are still in control. That they are still to be faithfully obedient. I suspect in many ways they are more obedient than we are. They trust you. Our lives are far too easy. I pray for us as a congregation and for the next generation and the generation after that. If the Lord Jesus doesn't come back, the one after that. For Marcus and Ransom's great-grandsons, may they hold on to the truth that you are in control and that they are to be faithfully obedient. Help us to see that it is only by your grace, only by your grace and your mercy, that we are obedient to the extent that we are. Forgive us for our disobedience, our lack of faith, for our desire to blend in and lose our saltiness, or to imagine that our faith is something to be hidden, to be kept hidden. I thank you for the book of Daniel, all of it, the easy part and the hard part, and for what it has to teach us. May your spirit bring these things to our hearts, and may we meditate on them in the days to come. And above all, may we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. May we go our way and be faithful until the time of the end of our days. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence in the coming days, particularly Tuesday when all these things are going on. May we trust you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.